This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Uh, Kevin Riley here, and welcome to the Irish Time here on the Man of Two Peoples Radio in Palmerston North, the best community station in town. Anyway, I've got a, a really bit of news here. Uh, not a lot, but it's still news. We'll start with this guy, Jerry Hutch, who's a gangster, really, and uh, they've extradited him from Spain where he'd been living. I mean, he was a serious uh, gangster, mafiosi type character. And it's all over the papers in Ireland at the moment, you know, because he's obviously a bad guy. I mean, he used to kill people or organise people to kill people. Murder, I should say. Anyway, here we go. Dubliner Jerry Hutch has appeared before the Special Criminal Court, charged with the murder of David Byrne in the, Re- in the Regency Hotel in 2016. The 58-year-old appeared before the Dublin Court after his extradition from Spain earlier on Wednesday. Wearing a white shirt and cream blazer, brown trousers and black shoes. I wonder how necessary that is. And having grown his hair and a beard since he was uh, last photographed in Spain just over a month before, Mr. Hutchins spoke only one word, yes, during the, the hearing to confirm his name. Presiding Judge Justice Star Tony Hunt uh, said a trial date of October, said trial date of October the 3rd. And, oh, not far away. And the court was told the Director of Public Prosecutions had directed the trial to take place before the Special Criminal Court, which sits without a jury. Uh, Mr. Hutch was remanded in custody until Friday, the, October the 15th. Uh, Detective Superintendent uh, Paul Scott of Ballymun Gardaí, uh, the police station over there, in, just out in Dublin, told the court he arrested Mr. Hutch at 7.12 on Wednesday at Casement or Aerodrome in uh, County Dublin. The court was told Mr. Hutch was taken to the courts of criminal justice in Dublin where the superintendent, uh, Scott, charged him with the murder of Mr. Byrne at the Regency Hotel uh, there in February. And he had done, he was involved in a lot of other stuff, this guy. I mean, they went to a lot of trouble to get him extradited. Uh, superintendent Scott added that, uh, had informed Mr. Hutch that the DPP, Director of Public Prosecutions, had directed his trial and would be heard before the Special Criminal Court. Brendan Gresham, oh no, Graham, sorry, S, uh, you know, SC for Mr. Hutch, uh, special counsel, said his client was reserving positions uh, in relation to the charge the ju- on the justification of the unlawfulness of his arrest. Isn't that amazing? Unlawfulness of his arrest. He also informed the court that uh, Mr. Hutch uh, had been vaccinated against uh, COVID-19 and had passed tests before his return on the plane back to Dublin. Uh, Mr. Hutch left Ireland five and a half years ago as a, a, a feud erupted in Dublin involving the, the Keehan, Kinahan uh, grand, uh, crime gang and the Ireland Municipal guys are stuck quite up there with, uh, you know, the cartels over in Central America, except, except, but they are, they are, they cover a lot of areas, you know, and they're kind of big and ruthless. The charges uh, he now faces arise from uh, a, f- a feud related uh, attack targeting members of uh, the Kinshan Hat Cartel at a boxing tournament in the Regency Hotel uh, last February. Or rather, February 1916. Donald Kinahan, the man previously named in the court as the leader of the gang, uh, was the target of the, the, the group of gunmen who burst into the hotel and opened fire. However, he fled uh, to safety on foot. Uh, one of their associates, David Byrne from Crumlin, was shot dead and a number of other men were wounded but survived. Mr. Hutch was arrested in uh, the Costa del Sol last month on foot, uh, on, foot of a, on foot of a European warrant. 
granted by the courts in Dublin earlier this year. That uh, that warrant was issued after the Director of Public Prosecutions decided Mr Hutchie faced trial relating to the man's death. Uh, Mr Hutchie is from Dublin's northeast uh, inner city, had uh, lived with his family for many years in Clontariff and was uh, traced to the Costa del Sol where he was arrested just over a month ago. He had been in custody in Madrid since uh, his detention. A ruling by the Spanish courts last week effectively rejected his efforts to block his extradition to the Republic, clearing the way for his return to Dublin. He was uh, extradited from Spain to Ireland on Wednesday in an Irish military aircraft and under guard escort. Visitors left the Madrid airport at about 2.30 on Wednesday and the, the airplane landed at Casement Airdrome in West Dublin at about 7 o'clock at night. So they've been trying to have been not tracking this guy, but he has appeared in a lot of uh, really, you know, gangland killings and drug deals and all sorts of deals. So and he's one of the top kings. So it's uh, interesting that he actually got him and good on the Spanish for letting it, you know, making it happen. But there again, it's one of the benefits of being a member of the European Union. Anyway, I find this really, really interesting. A blue pack Andrews, uh portable defiliator, defiliator, uh, Frank, Frank uh, Pantridge. This is just amazing. I never knew this. The Northern Ireland cardiologist who invented the portable defiliator has been honoured with a blue plaque in the, the Belfast Royal Victoria Hospital. The event uh, to mark the achievements of the professor who was born in Hillsborough and uh, was organised by the Ulster Historic uh, Circle. COVID restrictions meant only a small group could attend but included uh, his uh, nephew, also called Frank. Olympic gold medalist Lady Mary Peters unveiled the plaque at the, the hospital where the cardiologist worked for 32 years. It was a 250th plaque erected by the Ulster Historic Society. The event was originally planned for March uh, this year with a large guest list, but uh, was postponed because of the, the, the academic. Uh, unveiling the plaque on Wednesday, Lady Mary Peters said, the professor would have been humbled by this accolade, but yet immensely proud. Chris Spur, chairman of the Ulster His, uh, Historical S- Circle, said uh, Mr. Patridge's uh, pioneering work as a cardiologist at the Royal Victoria Hospital is of an outstanding international significance. As the world uh, awaits to see the 25th James Bond movie, the Ulster Historical Circle, is delighted that our, land- our landmark 250th blue plaque commemorates Professor Patridge and his uh, development of the portable defiliator. I mean, they are, that's, that's just amazing. His true work of genius outshines the feats of any fictitious secret agent and ensures that in real, li- in real life, millions and millions of people across the globe have had ta- you know, have had, who have had no time to die have had the benefit of his invention. Uh, Frank Patrick is a name we all, we are all familiar with for the enormous contribution he made to healthcare, according to the Royal Victoria Hospital. His invention uh, helped to save countless lives, not just here but across the globe, and it is fitting for him to be honoured in this way. Belfast is renowned for some of the most eminent scientific minds, and this is something we can be extremely proud of. Bernie Owens, uh, Deputy Chief Executive of uh, the Belfast Trust, today said, we are delighted to pay tribute to our, our late colleague, Professor Pantridge. We are immensely proud that he was one of the, one of our peers in the Royal Victoria Hospital. This plaque is an important reminder of his pioneering work and how the invention of his portable defiliator had transformed healthcare and saved countless lives both here and around the globe. And that's true. It is it's amazing, just amazing. I was really surprised because I always thought something like that would probably come from England or uh, America or some other kind of uh, country, but not, not in the Republic and in the Northern Ireland. So good on him. And this is for all you Gaelic football freaks. Uh, Paddy Pentecost. 
Paddy Prendergast, who was the last surviving starter from Mayo's 1951 All-Ireland football winning side, has died at the age of 95. Earlier this month, Pentecost was described by his former county teammate, Dr. Mick Lewis, as the best footballer I have ever saw. Lewis was a substitute during the 51 All-Ireland Final win over Meath, but did not feature in the game. Fullback Pentecost also helped Mayo to win the 1950 All-Ireland title. The Bully and Tubbin, I think that's how you said, native, also played for Donegal for a while after his work as a guardie took him to the to Ulster for a, a period of time. In the build-up to this year's All-Ireland uh, final, 92-year-old Loftus dismissed the tale of, of a curse put on the country, on the county's football team following their 1951 triumph. The story went that a priest put a curse on Mayo team after the lorry transporting the victorious players following their win over Meath failed to pay proper respects for the funeral cortege in uh, the town of Foxford. Supposedly, the priest had decreed Mayo would not win another All-Ireland until all members of the team had uh, been dead and gone. There was no funeral. I don't remember anyone. Let it go, boy, is what they said. But Dr. Mick said he only recalled uh, roadside celebrations which began in the county Roscommon town of uh, Strokesford. I think it's uh, a bit of all, a bit of a hullabaloo. When we arrived in the town, that's when the celebrations really started. They got a lorry uh, from somewhere and put us on the back of it. And from there, we went and we had a ball. We had great crack and lots of support from the locals. Isn't that amazing, priest doing that? But there again, that was 1950, 51. Okay, this is something that's kind of... Uh, Really, say New Zealand in some ways, you know. Ireland ends mandatory hotel quarantine for uh, travellers. Mandatory hotel quarantine in the Republic of Ireland for those travelling from uh, designated countries has ended. Uh, the country's health minister made an announcement on Saturday evening and said it was, it, you know, it was starting immediately. All countries are, have not been removed from the list of designated states. There were about 50 people in mandatory quarantine at the time of the announcement, and they are now being released, according to the Rio Television. The Mandarin Hotel quarantine system was introduced as a, an exceptional public health uh, measure at a time that our country was uh, contending with the very serious outbreak of importation of uh, variants of the, from various parts of the, the Europe and that the potential to overwhelm our health system and in particular undermine Ireland's COVID uh, vaccination programme. Uh, this successful operation... Uh, of quarantine has played a central role in protecting the population, maintaining control of the disease and enabling the, the safe relaxation of uh, restrictions on our economy and on our society in general. About 10,300 people are understood to have been uh, entered um, um, mandatory hotel quarantine in Ireland uh, since the requirement was introduced there in last March. Well, that's not far away, uh, long ago. Uh, passengers arriving in Ireland from high-risk countries uh, had to book and pay for a 12-night stay for a sel- uh, from a s- selection of dedicated hotels across the country. The stay could be reduced if a negative ni- uh, COVID-19 tests were received on day 10 of quarantine. The cost of the 12-day uh, stay was €1,875. Yes, that's £1,614 for one person. That's quite steep. At the end of the scheme, uh, 60 countries were on the list designated safe. So uh, we're going to be doing that here, I think, at some not-so-future not so date when uh, we will have to just have to ease it off because particularly the people in Auckland, I think, must be getting really, really frustrated with the whole thing because people have only got a certain limit of tolerance, believe it or not. Anyway, here's something uh, unusual. 
Uh, it's sort of sign of the times of what people will do, you know. Anyway, Michael Collins had a walking stick and it has sold for £52,000. Yes, £52,000. A walking stick owned by the Irish Republican leader, Michael Collins, has been sold in Belfast for £52,000, uh, a price five times higher than that was expected by the auctioneers. Uh, the century-old item, which has a silver collar and tip, is accompanied by a letter of uh, proof on Monday evening, the bidding stood at £8,200, just shy of the expected selling price of 10. It was among a series of historical lots going under the hammer. Uh, police files uh, were also tracking Collins's uh, files. We're also tracking Collins's activities during Ireland's War of Independence, and were also uh, they were also uh, auctioned at the Bloomfield auctions in East Belfast. That's all the files that the police had on this guy. Auctioneer Carl Bennett said he was absolutely shocked at the price of the stick sold for and was delighted for the owner. He was just, he's jumping, jumping around the room listening to the auction, shouting and yahooing. All sorts, uh, both him and his wife, they just had absolutely no idea what it was worth. The stick had been held by a private collector for almost 42 years. Uh, Mr. Bennett said his client felt it was time to, uh, to see the stick gone into the right hands, especially coming up to 100 years since Colin's death. He confirmed the stick had sold to an institution in the Republic of Ireland, and uh, while he could not reveal their identity, he was confident the stick would go on public display. Let's hope so. Museums and private uh, collections had expressed an interest in the, the walking stick before it uh, completely got out of hand. They, you know, the, the amount of being, uh, they ended up uh, paying for it. Uh, prior to the auction, Mr. Benison, a, polit- a politician in court, had asked the Irish government to buy the stick, Rosewood stick. The auctioneer described the stick as unremarkable, bar its owner. And that's why it was sold, because it was Michael Collins. Michael Collins was the man, as they say. Uh, people respected Michael Collins back then and still do. He was hailed by many people in Ireland as a real hero in Ireland at that particular time. And that's very true. Michael Collins was just, he was a, le- a true legend. You know, it's as simple as that. And he was a gentleman as well. And now, talking about, still in Belfast, this is uh, some stuff I got here about George Bass. Uh, some of his quotes, which were kind of uh, incredible and funny. An incredibly talented footballer who bottled his first year of demons. He says he's best remembered for his efforts on the pitch and his witticism often. Here's some of them. Well, um, on, on going missing, I used to go uh, I used to go missing a lot. Miss Canada, Miss United Kingdom, Miss World. On, and his thoughts on Kevin Keegan. He's been very, very lucky. Average player who came into the game when, when they were short of other players. On enjoying the best of both worlds, if you'd given me the choice of going out and beating four men and smashing a goal in front of uh, Liverpool, uh, it would be a, it would have been a difficult choice to have made. On giving up the drink, that was his problem, that's killed him in the end. I've stopped drinking, but only while I'm asleep. <laughs> a bit like Oscar Wilde, isn't he? He cannot kick, uh, this is about David Beckham. And I sort of agree with that. Beckham's a great good footballer, but he's not a great footballer. He cannot kick with his left foot, he cannot hit a ball, he cannot tackle, and he doesn't score many goals. Apart from that, he's all right. On retiring from the game, it is typical of me to be finishing a long and distinguished drinking career, uh, just as the government is planning to open 24 hour, uh, pubs 24 hours a day. On wasting his money, I spent a lot of time on booze, birds, and fast cars. The rest I just squandered. On giving it all up, in 1969, I gave up women and alcohol. It was the worst 20 minutes of my life. There have been a few players described as the, the new George Best, but over the years, but this is the, you know, the first time I, it's been a compliment to me. 
on the 1980, uh, 1960 European Cup final. I used to dream about kicking the ball around the keeper, uh, stumbling it on the line, and then getting down on my hands and knees and heading it into the net. When I scored against Benfica in the in 1968 Cup final, uh, European final, I nearly did it. I left the keeper for dead, but then I chickened out. I might have given the boss a heart attack. I was Matt Busby at the time. On Paul, Paul Gascoigne, I once said Gaza. Uh, I said Gaza's IQ was less than his shirt number, and he asked me, "What's an IQ?" People always say I shouldn't be burning the candle at both ends. Maybe they haven't got a big enough candle. On uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, I might go to Alcoholics Anonymous, but I think it would be difficult for me to remain anonymous. On Pele, you know, the greatest footballer of all time, really. Pele called me the greatest footballer in the world. That is the ultimate salute to my life. And being born with a gift, I was born with a great gift. And sometimes with that comes a destructive streak. Just as I wanted to outdo everyone when I played, I had to do out everyone when we went out on the town and to the pubs and clubs. On the Miss World rumours, they say I slept with seven Miss Worlds. I didn't. It was only four. I didn't turn up for the other three. And on Eric Cantona, you know, another Manchester United player, I give all the champs, oh, I would give all the champagne I've ever drunk to be playing alongside with him in a big European match at Old Trafford. On his legacy, they'll forget all the rubbish when I've gone and they'll remember the football. If only one person thinks I'm the best player in the world, that's good enough for me. And at, and at his prime, he was the best player in the world. There was no argument there. Nobody could come within a, a bull's roar of the man. Okay, this is about the, the petrol shortage back there in uh, you know the UK, particularly England. Northern Ireland is currently experiencing the wave. Is not currently experiencing the wave of panic buying, which has hit large parts of the UK in recent weeks. While England, Scotland and Wales have faced widespread fuel shortages, partly exasperated by hoarding among some consumers at the pump, um, chairman of the, the Petrol Retailers Association has stressed that Northern Ireland is, is faring better. Speaking of the BBC uh, radio foil, Madison said there are plenty of uh, HGV drivers, there's plenty of fuel in terminals in Derry and Belfast, and there's plenty of fuel underground at the four courts. Northern Ireland has not uh, experienced the same panic bang as the rest of the UK, which is good news. Which uh, that is good news because the rest of it's really grim. I saw a snippet on the uh, watching the news, the BBC, I think it was, and they said that uh, the you know the, the troops are being you know made not made but are going onto the streets as it were to organise the you know, the rationing of the petrol. So there's stop all the queues because there's been a lot of aggro going on among uh, you know clients as it were. So that it is pretty good. That's good. It's not happening over there. But doesn't give you any reason why. Anyway, on to something completely different here. This is from the Irish Independent. Kerry Holiday Home, where Bishop Eamon Casey stayed with Annie Murphy, is up for sale for 1.65 million euros. He's uh, the, the bishop that sort of ended up in disgrace, really. A sunny and carry holiday home uh, where Bishop Eamon Casey was once spent time with Annie Murphy has been put on the market at a reduced price. Redcliffe House, which boasts panoramic views over uh, the Inch Beach and towards uh, the McGillicuddy Reeks, Reek, uh, has been uh, listed with uh, the Manson Global Enterprises at a sale price of one million point six five, one 1,000,065 euros. It has again been offered for sale after being listed in 2015 at about 1.9. The property, which boasts seven bedrooms, five bathrooms, has been offered on international markets, given its attractives and a, as a luxury Irish holiday home. And it is, the McGillicuddy Reeks uh, is just spectacular. 
Uh, Redcliffe was built uh, as a hunting lodge for Lord Ventry in 1784 in the late Georgian villa style. But Redcliffe is best known for the former residence of the late Bishop Eamon Casey and was, uh, was the property where he spent time with Annie Murphy, by whom he, ha- he later had a son called Peter. A famous uh, photograph shows Miss Murphy standing by the then red-painted gates leading up to Redcliffe House. Uh, uh, when Miss, Miss, Murphy was a, Miss Murphy was the daughter of an American friend of the bishops who had troubled the island for a quick break after a messy UK, US divorce. After stringing up their, their friendship, uh, Bishop Carey and the two became very intimate. And, you know, Miss Murphy became very intimate. And they had a, child, they had a son. Their son Peter was born in July in 1974. Short time later, Miss Murphy left Ireland with her son Hope, having uh, rebuffed the bishop's demands that the child be put up for uh, adoption. Uh, Bishop Casey's love child was kept a secretly, a highly closed secret for almost 20 years. Isn't that amazing? 20 years. Bishop Casey was uh, subsequently appointed Bishop of Galway and then played a key role in Pope John Paul II's visit to Ireland in 1979. But he became one of the highest profile clerics in Ireland. After that, I'm not surprised. However, the Irish Church was rocked by the revelation of his love child in 1992, prompting his resignation as bishop and transfer by the Vatican as a missionary to a remote parish in Ecuador. At the moment, Ecuador is not a place to be with all that rats and the you know cartels that are running the prisons, people being mutilated. He was never again allowed to say Mass in public in Ireland and died in County Clare way back there in 2017. Built on four acres of land, Redcliffe House is just a few minutes' stroll from the world-famous Inch Beach and just a few minutes' drive from Dingle, the lovely part of the world. In uh, 2008, the property was painstakingly renovated, including the installation of all modern conveniences. The refurbishment included uh, re-riffing the entire property, installing modern plumbing and wiring, dry lining of all the walls and putting underfloor heating during the works, the, the, the building was uh, expanded to include a wraparound solitarium, or a, yeah, like a, and a gym. Amazing. But there again, it's sold. And to get down to something that I'm, if you've been listening to this program, I'm really uh, an animal lover, you know. I just I just like animals, dogs in particular, are kind of a favourite. You know, I just can't stand cruelty to animals, they're just... It's beyond appeal to me that anyone can treat an animal so badly, you know. Anyway, uh, this is about uh, an Irishman who appeared on uh, Radio Television, uh, you know, pleading for an end to animal cruelty in Ireland. Uh, Karen Tiffany, I think, called uh, the radio station where she told the standard presenter, Damien O'Reilly, that her loved pet family dog, that family pet, Dashan rather, Keisha, had been tortured and found dead in a canal days after she went missing. Darren tearfully explained that she had come home from work in Dublin three weeks ago to find her pet missing, possibly having climbed out a, an open window. She enlisted the help of her friends, family and missing uh, and missing appeals on the internet to search high and low for her beloved dog. And with a spirit of dog noppings, well, dog noppings in recent months across Ireland, was worried she wouldn't see Krisha again. Her suspicions were raised when she noticed that the missing posters she had left in uh, the local area were being removed as though someone didn't want any attention brought to them. On one of the, her searches, a group of children told Karen's son that they had seen a dead dog floating in the canal, which had been there for four days. And while it didn't exactly match um, Kisha's description, they went to have a look. Tragically, tragically, the reason for the dog, uh, da- uh, da- the, the reason the dog did not match uh, Kisha's description was because the much-loved panel had been mutilated beyond ra- recognition. Isn't that just... 
What do you do with people like that? Eh? What do you do? I think, you know, with people that treat like they should actually go to prison. No, I just give them a bollocking and uh, find them a few dollars and, you know, not to do that again. You can't have a pet for whatever. I just think it's, a, it's total nonsense. It's just, after they should make an example of some people, especially dog farms, you know. They're really the pits, to say the least. I mean, they just... Sometimes, like I've said before, you feel ashamed to be a human being. That I, you know, I actually resemble some of these people that do that. Anyway, the dog was found in a, a gym bag, which was zipped up to her neck with a wire wrapped around her neck and the handles of the bag. She was completely mutilated. Uh, and the dog appeared to have been tortured, beaten and killed before she was ever, uh, you know, sort of uh, ever free. That's not It's a word missing here, I'm sorry. She found out before she was ever, uh, you know, alone. I'm on the verge of uh, tears myself. She said the guard here investigating the horrific incident, but so far there are no leads. And pleaded with people to stop this horrific cruelty to animals, which she said is all too common in Ireland. And what I've read in the papers, I would agree with her. Just this week, an animal charity in Limerick rescued a 10 week old puppy who had been kicked around like a football. Uh, the puppy had been cruelly kicked around like a football, uh, broken jaw, fractured skull, suffering a broken jaw and a fractured skull again. It was just, what do you do with people like that, you know? I sort of would grab them, put them in stocks and give them a kicking, you know, because it's just, you can tell people that's wrong. People know it's wrong, so, you know, I just got a bit uh, lost for words here, as you can tell. Anyway, to start, this is from, this, I got this from Radio New Zealand, this bit. It's about a guy called Peter Taylor, who was a, a journalist for 50 years, and he spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland covering the Troubles. Few, you know, like I say, few people, a few journalists on the planet have more experience in reporting tourism than the PBC's Peter Taylor. And it's true, I mean, I used to listen to him, I didn't, no idea who he was. But uh, Taylor cut his teeth reporting on conflict in his own country, the United Kingdom. And uh, he, has, he has been covering the story of Northern Ireland's troubles for the past 50 years. Uh, this year he uh, rated his remarkable body of TV reporting and documentaries for a film, yeah, for the BBC called, simply called Ireland After Partition because of the year marks the 100th uh, year since Ireland was divided into Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which is uh, you know, an important uh, move. Why did an Englishman devote almost his entire career to this conflict? It started with the awful day that became known as Bloody Sunday in January 1972 when British paratroopers shot uh, 13 innocent Catholics, uh, civil rights marchers. I know nothing. I knew nothing about Al before I went over to cover the story. I went around knocking on doors with considerable trepidation, but far from people slamming the door in my face or being abusive, they told me they were delighted that I'd taken the trouble to ask them what had happened because they didn't trust the British media. I remember saying to myself that I must start trying to find out and make sense of what is going on. I spent the next 50 years doing that and crucially explaining to a British audience that really uh, didn't want to know about it. That's very true as well. If he had given up now, if he had given up after, say, 20 years, would he regret it now? I think I would. There was one time I almost did. It was 1976. I had a lovely man called uh, Desmond Irvine. He was the secretary of the Northern Ireland Prison Officers Association. He was prepared to say that he could understand why IRA prisoners wanted political status. He did a brilliant interview for uh, which he was applauded, and then the IRA shot him dead about two weeks later. Peter Taylor attended his funeral and later confronted Republicans uh, to ask why they murdered a man who expressed understanding of their uh, commitment. He said they told him it was nothing to do with the interview. He was marred for death but simply because he worked in the prison system. Didn't it? Like I said, you know, people beyond appeal, just like these dog people. <laughs> 
Taylor said he was mortified and even attended uh, Irvang's funeral. After the killing, I got a phone call from a journalist in Belfast uh, who asked me how it felt to have blood in my hands. Isn't that just shocking? In Peter Taylor's documentaries and series, millets on both sides of the political sectarian divide admit to murders and terrorist acts. He himself was reporting on sensitive security policy and people who were trying to broker broker peace deals in secret with different parties. This exposed him to huge personal risk, as well as those he was speaking to. It was. The man had courage of his convictions. Good on him. The one of those people on on each side might think I was working for the intelligence services. That was very dangerous, and I occasionally had dreams about being arrested, interrogated, and tortured. Taylor says he was warned by senior figures on both sides that it was, he was suspected of working for uh, the British you know, security outfit, MI5. In the end, people I interviewed and made films about could always judge my integrity by what they saw on the screen. I thought I had been feared so that uh, my shield, and, and that was my shield and my defender. But I walked a fine line for almost those 50 years. I wobbled a bit, but I never fell over. Uh, Peter Taylor also made films about ordinary people and the effect of the conflict on them. In the 1970s, with tourism in Northern Ireland ramping up, he took, he took a working couple from Hull in North England uh, to Belfast to see for themselves what was happening there. Tony Edmondson, the bus driver, was with me, basically uh, asked me he didn't know anything about what was happening until he saw it for himself. Peter Taylor made another movie in which he accompanied a charity which took Catholic and Protestant children out of their district, their district Belfast, distinct Belfast districts to a holiday camp in Wales and he followed what happened when they made their first friendship uh, with kids from the other side that's just amazing some people have never actually spoken to a Catholic or spoken to a Protestant I mean that was that's true by the way that's true uh, what 50 years unravelling has enabled me to do is to show how the British came out of many, many years and decades to persuade the IRA finally to give up the so-called armed struggle and concentrate on politics. What an astonishing story Astonishing story it is and what a triumph of political initiative and political determination to go from bloody Sunday and turn it through to the Good Friday Agreement. It's not a perfect piece, but I am still covering Ireland after all these years. So there you go, Mr. Peter Taylor. He did a great job. Yeah, what you like to think they do. You know, journalists are kind of neutral. I mean, obviously had his own feelings, etc. But he showed integrity on to both sides of the the dispute. Anyway, it's me for this week. So I'll be back again next week and enjoy the day because it's absolutely you know, don't know where you are, but here in Palmerston at the moment, it's, the sun is shining after some fickle weather over the last few days of just wind and rain. And take care, be kind to one another, and we'll see you next week. Okay. Thank you very, very much. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.